0: We knew that this year's presidential election wasn't going to be like any other. Still, Election Day has turned into Election Week, with a highly competitive race between Democratic candidate Joe Biden and the incumbent president, Donald Trump. And as of right now, it looks like Joe Biden has it in the bag. We're taping this episode of Get Wired on the Friday after Election Day, which means by the time you hear this, some of the news may have already changed— But we've ended up in a place where the whole notion of counting votes, a fundamental part of the election process, has come under fire. And unsurprisingly, misinformation has been floating around certain corners of the internet or just within the president's Twitter feed. So I asked three of my Wired colleagues to join me and share what they've learned this week and what it means for future elections, regardless of the outcome of this one. This is Get Wired, and I'm your host, Lauren Good. All right, let's go to the roundtable. We have Galad Edelman, our politics writer, joining us from Washington, D.C. Hey, Galad. What up, LG? Lily Hay Newman joining us from New York City to talk about vote counting and election security. Hey, Lily. Hi, Lauren. And Emma Gray Ellis joining us from Portland, Oregon, is going to tell us how fringe groups on the internet are responding to all of the news this week. Hey, Emma, thanks for joining me.
1: Hey, Lauren, thanks for having me.
0: All right, first question I have for all of you. How is everyone doing right now?
1: We Shall Overcome is stuck in my head for the last, like, 48 hours, but now it's taken on the general vibe of, like, a creepy children's song during a horror movie <laughs> just <laughs> in the background. That's where I'm at.
2: I just, like, when I close my eyes, I see vote totals and the percent of outstanding absentee ballots that I predicted to go to Trump versus Biden in various states. It feels like Excel spreadsheets are tattooed on the backs of my eyelids.
0: Lily, how about yourself?
3: Yeah, I don't know even what to say. When I close my eyes, it's just like white noise or something.
2: (laughs) Well, what I think is crazy is that we all probably mentioned in pieces that we wrote before the election at some point, like, hey, by the way, it's going to probably take a while for the votes to get counted. Don't freak out. You know, if the election isn't called by Friday, nothing weird about that. And then as I'm living it, I'm like, this is a friggin' outrage. How dare you? dare the election not be called by bedtime on Tuesday. Like, I can't stand it. Every minute feels like a friggin' hour.
0: And, Galad, the morning of Election Day, you wrote to some of us in Slack, you know, if I had to bet, I'd bet we'd go to bed tonight and know that Biden has this nearly wrapped up. And you really can't be blamed for that, because national polling, since at least October, has indicated that Biden would be the clear winner. So one of the things I've been curious about is whether or not pollsters have gotten any better or learned anything from 2016. Have you gotten a sense of that yet?
2: So to the question of have they learned anything, yes. To the question of have they gotten better, apparently not. Two things seem to have gone wrong in a lot of states. For one thing, it's just when you're doing a state poll, if you're even a really good pollster, they might have a a sample of 1,000 people. And in that sample, maybe there's 100 Latino voters in a place like Florida. But the Florida Latino community is really diverse and the odds that that subsample of Latinos is going to be representative of the voters across the state, those odds are really low. So it's just really hard to build a good representative state poll because at that point the subgroups that that really matter are getting so small. The other error that happened is basically the same thing as in 2016. So the big story of 2016 was, you know, nationally the polls were off a few points, but they were off a lot in those pivotal states of Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, which nobody thought Trump would win. Um, And what happened was the polls underestimated the support of non-college-educated white voters for Trump. In the years since 2016, all the pollsters, or most of the pollsters, did the same thing to try to avoid that problem again. They controlled for education. So going into 2016, white voters weren't broken down by having a college degree or not in most polls because there never had been a huge divergence before. After 2016, when it became clear that non-college white voters loved Trump way more than college voters, pollsters started weighting by education, and that was expected to solve the problem but it didn't solve the problem. And so I talked to a few pollsters and a few polling experts, and the the main hypothesis I've heard is that independent of your education level, the more into Trump you are, the less likely you are to answer a poll when, for example, you get a call and it says, hey, I'm, I'm from ABC and I'm conducting a poll or I'm from the Washington Post the more someone supports Trump, the more distrustful they are of academia and the mainstream media, and so the less likely they are to respond, even when you control for education levels. You know, I talked to one pollster who had, you know, tried to make sure that he was getting these balanced samples that verifying that he was polling people who had voted for Trump in 2016. And his results were showing that that about 8% of these people were planning to vote for Biden. It doesn't look like that happened, and he thinks that it's because his sample was biased to begin with in favor of Trump voters who were going to vote for Biden. So, like, even the Trump voters who were willing to pick up the phone were actually skewed in this way that was invisible to pollsters going into this election.
0: Huh. Lily, you've been closely reporting on the process of the election, right? The mechanics of voting either in person or by mail and how secure that all is and also what it means to vote in the time of COVID. Has there been any indication so far of this being in any way an an unfair election or of votes being tampered with?
3: There really hasn't been. And in fact, this election has been going extremely well in terms of uh, mechanical failures with things like voting machines or electronic poll books on election day or you know, other types of snafus. There were some, but this election seems to really be on par with past election days, which is just such an unbelievable achievement when you think about the fact that this election day was nothing like any past election day, because it happened not only in the middle of a pandemic that has so changed everything, but while cases are spiking around the country, you know, it's not like conveniently, the, uh, you know, the election fell during a lull and everyone was kind of like, well, it's fine. You know, we're having record case counts around the country. So the fact that everything went so smoothly, again, just relative to the baseline uh, that there's always some issues and some problems, I, I just think is an incredible testament to the work that was done by election officials, local, state And, you know, federal contributions leading up to this day, because it was a scramble, you know, in these eight months, but there was just enough advanced warning that clearly everyone was able to really pull it together.
2: Isn't it weird when we in the press scream and complain and worry about stuff. And then the stuff kind of gets fixed. Like, that's what I can't wrap my head around here is, you know, everyone's been saying for years, our election infrastructure is insecure and our like elections are going to be disasters and we need more paper ballots. And then administrators addressed a lot of those problems and it kind of worked.
3: Well, I mean, it did take a massive foreign interference campaign to motivate that change. So in 2016. Thank you, Russia. So I I wouldn't exactly (laughs) say that we were way ahead, uh, on sort of getting out in front of, you know, resolving issues with our election infrastructure simply because we foresaw that it would make sense to do so. But I guess, I mean, nothing about the pandemic is convenient, but slightly convenient for the purpose of the pandemic. You know, we did spend the last four years, uh, attempting to beef up infrastructure. I was just relieved and so impressed that this went so well.
0: But at the same time, there are people who believe that votes are being unfairly counted or tampered with. The president himself has called for the nation to stop counting votes. Groups of protesters have formed outside of places where people are counting ballots. And It seems as though if one were inclined to believe that there's something amiss and they saw these videos online of people protesting it, that it would basically confirm their beliefs, right? What is happening there? Well,
3: President Trump had certainly laid the groundwork to make these claims for months in public statements, concerns about uh, absentee by mail ballots, about uh, vote by mail, where everyone, you know, every registered voter gets a ballot. Concerns about states that expanded to do vote by mail and send every registered voter a, a ballot, such as Nevada.
2: Can I just say, con- concerns is not really the right word here. These were deliberate well, uh, r- lies.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, he he has been laying the groundwork that this was what he was going to assert right so we're not mm-hmm. surprised now that he's doing that but that right these concerns were not founded when he started bringing them up and we're really just unable to produce any evidence now and the Trump re-election campaign is having great difficulty getting any type of legal traction and The other thing I I always like to mention is that, you know, to the extent that these are valid concerns, which, you know, they're really not, but election officials are on it. It's not like they've never considered the possibility that someone could try to do this if there weren't protections in place. So there are protections in place. You know, they vary by state, but election officials, both with mail ballots or, you know, ballots submitted in person, whatever. There's protections in place to make sure that ballot is a legitimate ballot, that it's not a forgery, that, you know, the person voting is who they say they are, that they are an eligible voter, that they aren't voting for someone else, things like signature checks. And occasionally, as President Trump has uh, sort of gleefully pointed out, occasionally there are examples of ballots that are collected illegally or you know, ballots that are submitted improperly. A lot of times these are just genuine, earnest mistakes. And so they, those need to be caught and corrected as well. But sometimes nefarious things do happen and someone is trying to submit a vote, you know, for a dead relative or something like that. And the systems are also in place to catch that. And, you know, so when President Trump has been uh, publicizing these incidents, To me, really, and to election officials I've spoken to and uh, researchers, really what that demonstrates is that the system works. There are uh, sort of freak situations, either malicious or not, and
0: they get caught. Let's talk about misinformation. If someone happened to go to President Trump's Twitter feed on Wednesday of election week, you would have noticed a whole lot of warning labels. Someone on Twitter said that there were more warning labels than a pack of cigarettes, What was going on there?
3: Yeah, so the platforms were really on top of labeling, and as sort of the more unexpected parts of this week started to play out, it got tougher. You know, for example, uh, there was a Facebook group called Stop the Steal, like all caps Stop the Steal. That phrase is kind of coming from language that the Trump re-election campaign and Trump himself is using. Uh, and within a couple of days, I think it sprang up uh, Wednesday, maybe Tuesday night. Uh, by Thursday, it had 360,000 members. Or- I joined. Okay, 360,001. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Gilad, what was happening over there?
2: Yeah, so I join a lot of wacky Facebook groups that eventually get banned, um, you know, as reportage. Um, and Wait, the groups
0: themselves get banned or you get banned?
2: The Both. groups get banned. I'm a, <laughs> oh, okay. I, I'm, I'm a member in good standing. <laughs> I um, figured you were
0: just posting some wild stuff in there, and eventually they just they boot you out. Our Look, dude is an I, instigator. I
2: <laughs> I, um, so I saw people tweeting about how this group was getting really big, really fast on Facebook. So I just decided to go check it out. And I joined um, and I was able to hang out there for like an hour or so until Facebook shut the group down, uh, which was a pretty dramatic step for for a company that has often gotten criticized for letting groups or posts stay up and get a ton of interactions for hours or days before taking any action against it. And I was, I was pretty interested, you know, there was more kind of debate going on in there than I expected. Like, you know, it, the, the point of the group was to stop Democrats from stealing the election. But there was a lot of disagreement about, you know, some people were like, hey, we got to get ready to, you know, to get our guns and... And then other people were like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> let's just let them count the votes. Like, yes, yeah, let's go protest and let's go observe the vote count, but I don't know about that. It got reported as if there was this, you know, coup uh group that that if left unchecked by Facebook would, you know, lead to mass chaos. And it's not really the vibe that I got. And I think that the fact that they can't even settle on one consistent message about whether votes should be counted or not has also blunted the force of whatever, you know, conspiracy theory they're trying to allege.
0: Right, right. Emma, you've written a lot about how online extremists, you know, might have planned to interfere with the election. To what extent did those did those plans actually come into fruition?
1: To a certain extent, we're not going to know um, until much later. Because so much of this organizing happens online, on platforms that aren't required to be transparent with researchers or with the general public, we actually don't know how much um, of these kinds of conversations are happening or how successful Facebook's moderating strategies are in actually dealing with that conversation. And so it's good that we can point to groups like Stop the Steal and say that this was an instance in which moderation has worked, um, which it totally did. Um, But that is Facebook... Sort of finally acting on something that it's been under enormous pressure to do for a really long time, and the issue always becomes is that when you ban the public-facing group that everyone knows about, those people didn't—they don't disappear into the ether just because they disappeared from the headlines. Um, but I think that encouragingly, some of the more nightmare scenarios that people had been envisioning—you know, the After the debates, when President Trump told the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by, I think that a lot of people thought that we were going to be dealing with um, a coup of some kind. But and I've written about this before, but like this is just not how these groups tend to work. There's a lot of online bluster and it doesn't tend to have that much offline bluster. impact. Um, but granted, in this case, we have seen um, armed poll watchers in states like North Carolina and Arizona, and there has been you know, unrest in Portland, where I live, and um, in cities like Seattle and Minneapolis as well. Um, and so it's been a really mixed moment in terms of being someone who spends a lot of time watching extremist spaces online, because it's just been Maybe an even more heightened form of waiting than I think what everyone's been doing, where you're constantly refreshing the election returns. I was constantly doing that, but then also constantly refreshing 4chan uh, just to see <laughs> what was going to be. And it's been a little bit like living inside the dark maw of the internet for a week. But,
0: right. I mean, w- without giving too much space to mm-hmm. conspiracy theories, how would you describe that experience of, of refreshing 4chan while the rest of us are looking at like vote counts in Wisconsin?
2: And and can we give them a little space? I mean, I, I want to know how they're take, what what the discourse is over there. Like, <laughs> right, caveat, I, I, it's not I'm true, curious, you guys. Right, like, it's not I, yeah. true, listeners out there, they're wrong. Emma mm-hmm. doesn't believe it, but having said that.
1: Yeah, I mean, the thing is that, and I think that you sort of hit on this Earlier is that the conspiracy theories have been so, telegraphed so well in advance that it's almost a little boring. Like the and also like if you consider that many of the or much of the sort of pro Trump conspiracy space has been consumed by QAnon, um, which if you've been living under some very Wholesome rock is a sort of like meta conspiracy that encompasses every bad thought that anyone's ever had about the government. Uh, and wait,
2: wait, <laughs> Emma, sixty percent of Americans live under that rock. Like in most in people who live more wholesome lives than us, as you say, yeah. do not know. Still, don't know what QAnon is. But I know if you if you, <laughs> if, if you pay any attention to to tech or political journalism, then yes, you've seen thirty stories about QAnon right. per week for the last six months.
1: Yeah, well, if you are one of those people with, I'm sure, much better mental health than I at this point, um, the QAnon positions Trump as a kind of god emperor in a grand, um, grand gambit to like decorruptify the government, which they s- assume is a, like pedophile ring run by Jewish Democrats, Satanists slash Hollywood. It doesn't like anyone, any group that. You've ever heard anyone have a conspiracy theory about it sort of fits into the QAnon bucket? And so that means that anything that happens is potential fodder for further conspiracizing. And so there's been a lot about burning ballots. There's been a lot about dead voters. There's been a lot about just, you know, Election, various kinds of election interference that we know from what Lily said, it just isn't happening. The, but they seize onto those individual moments that are evidence that the system is working and catching problems and say, this is emblematic of the entire system at large. And I'm incorporating it into my um, very Byzantine, uh, conspiracy minded worldview.
0: So, Emma, how has the QAnon community been responding to the news this week?
1: Well, I've learned that. QAnon followers are incredibly flexible, and really anything can be taken as evidence of Trump's mastery over all that he surveys, <laughs> including appearing to lose in in a number of states that they thought that he wasn't going to. Um, they're, of course, I think, um, amplifying a lot of the conspiracy theories that the Trump campaign itself has floated. You know, from sort of the dead dead voters voting to ballot burning, et cetera. Um, and they're just, I think, just really are convinced that Trump will lead them on into their um, right and ordained future, which we know that he won't.
0: Emma, what does it mean that a person who has openly supported QAnon has now won a House seat in Georgia?
1: Yeah, I mean, the I was talking about this with Lily earlier, and I was like, like it's bad. Well, she's one person, basically. The And we've had wingnut Congress people before. I mean, take Representative Steve King, who was basically an open white nationalist. He didn't bring the House crumbling to its knees, and I don't imagine that Marjorie Taylor Greene will either. I think that it's probably a bigger um, of a, of bigger concern for the Republican Party. You can't really be a mainstream political party if you run on conspiracy theories, and that's what QAnon is. Um, but at the same time, it's really hard to put this. Back in the box, because there's a lot of research that suggests that once you've embraced uh, a worldview that hinges on conspiracy theories, um, people tend to expand the number of conspiracy theories that they believe in, but they don't generally go back to living in the sort of fact based reality that you and I might. We're also in a psychologically perfect moment for people to start believing in conspiracy theories because. You don't come to believe in sort of like wacky alternative theories about how the world might work unless you're really afraid of the way that it actually does work. And we're living in a time where not only is there an incredibly tense election, where there's a lot of dispute about what's actually happening among people, you know, as we've said, it's not true. We know what's happening. But there is a sense of doubt that President Trump has worked really hard to to spur on. And also we're in the middle of a pandemic where everyone's afraid out of their minds and has been told that like... Uh, you know, it has various different different potential villains creating this pandemic. And so people have been living in this soup of extreme, true information and extreme false information. And so it's not surprising to me that we have a public that's sort of cobbled together a really bizarre um way of looking at the world because the world's really bizarre
0: on that note <laughs> on that note, let's take a quick break. and we come back. We're going to talk about what this election might mean for the future and also our favorite election memes. Everything is fine. Everything is fine! Welcome back to this special election episode of Get Wired. All right, let's talk about the most important thing. Emma, Which memes are winning the internet right now?
1: I think the only memes worth talking about are the ones clowning on Nevada for being so slow to count. They are everywhere. I also really like the one where it compares watching election returns to people peering into their ovens on the Great British Bake Off. We've all been there. We're all kneeling on the floor waiting for democracy to
0: rise. Right. And if you open the door too many times, it's just all going to go flat. So you have to It'll be really careful mm-hmm. about that. Yep. Talk about the, the ones that are um, making fun of Nevada. What are those like?
1: Oh, there's such – I mean, it, they – They've expanded to every format. Some of it's just tweets saying that they're very slow. But, you know, the TikTok teens are imitating what it must be like to, you know, be a Nevada ballot counter. <laughs> the, comparing it to that scene in uh, Zootopia at the ZMv. Two. Nine. The sloth moves very slowly. You know, the, the Internet's really diversified in what memes are. And so... The most important thing is that everyone's annoyed in Nevada, the in every possible way.
0: A lot, Lily. Anything fun on the internet you care to share?
3: I definitely had an absolute favorite, though it was it was a tight race over on the meme end of things as well. It was uh, <laughs> just so much brilliant content, but my favorite had to be protesters in Philadelphia uh, Thursday. Uh, they were out to sort of support the integrity of the vote, and people were dressed as full-body costume here, okay? Like, really imagine. Uh, Mailboxes, like blue USPS boxes, (laughs) ballot boxes, and what I believe is Philadelphia City Hall, full-body costume. And and they're dancing to Missy Elliott, and I, I mean... Just count all the votes, guys. Like, it, it's it was awesome.
1: I love the fetishization of the post office that Gen Z has undertaken as just an operation. They're just going to make the post office sexy again. And so we're, <laughs> we're, we're going to have sexy mailboxes. It's going to be a thing.
2: So mine, the, the, mine's kind of cheating. It's not really an election meme. But I've recently become aware of this comedian named James Austin Johnson, who does the absolute funniest Trump impersonation, in addition to just mimicking Trump's voice and mannerisms really well, is that he has developed an uncanny ability to imitate Trump's patterns of thought and speech. And so, like the video that I was cackling at uh, on my couch the other day was him imitating Trump uh, complaining about Pokemon.
0: We beat the
1: Elite Four, and as far as I'm concerned, that's the end of the game. But there are people in this country who are going to tell you that you have not beaten the game until you have caught them all.
2: It strikes me as sort of a sort of tragic that he only really came onto the scene at what you know what turned out to be the end of the Trump presidency. We we could have been laughing at this guy for years, but apparently that's how long it took to really sharpen the craft.
0: I think it's easy to write off memes as these silly expressions on the internet. But at the same time, maybe they're not silly when the whole nation is collectively trying to cope with this like ever-present anxiety right now.
1: Definitely, I don't think they're silly at all. The you know we've seen memes do everything from sort of relieve this collective tension, allow people to participate in the kind of like group effervescence that everyone really needs right now. Um, we've also seen memes be you know ISIS recruitment tactics. I think that it's time that everyone think of memes as a sort of unit of internet culture that's used for communicating a variety of ideals uh, rather than just a joke.
0: All right, let's talk about the future. Galad, what does the new D.C. political landscape look like at this point?
2: Well, at this point, it looks like Biden is set to take over the White House. Um, The Democrats retain control of the House but the Senate is less of a clear picture because there are still two seats up for grabs, and right now Democrats have 48 seats, and you know a lot is going to ride on whether those two Democrats can win their races. Because if the Senate is split at 50 50, then uh, Vice President Kamala Harris uh, will cast the tie breaking vote. Even if Democrats don't win the Senate, though, you know having Joe Biden in the White House instead of Donald Trump. It's going to make a huge difference for a lot of things that Wired covers. So, you know, when it comes to climate change, you can't pass major climate legislation without, without the Senate's participation. But Biden could re-enter the Paris Climate Accord, uh, which he signaled his intention to do, um, and can reverse a lot of the Trump administration's really disastrous um, decisions uh, to, you know, roll back environmental protections. Having said all that, that really isn't enough. Climate-wise, there'll be a big friggin' problem if Mitch McConnell retains uh, control of the Senate, because so far he's, you know, he's just signaled no interest in facilitating real legislation to address the climate crisis. When it comes to tech policy stuff, there's actually a weird amount of bipartisanship. So if we think back to the House antitrust report on big tech from a couple months ago. The Democrats and their Republicans didn't agree on everything in that report, but they actually agreed on a fair amount. And so, you know, the the bigger question for me is what does Biden really want to do when it comes to tech policy issues like antitrust and potentially even breaking up the giants like Google, Facebook, Amazon, Apple? And the boring answer is we don't really know. Um, Biden had this extended network of informal policy advisors, and it included people by design from all over the spectrum. So when it comes to tech, that's less the left-right spectrum, and it's more the kind of critic versus defender spectrum. And so the thing to watch out for over the coming months is who is going to be in the positions of power in the Biden administration? What kind of people does he appoint to the Department of Justice? Who is doing his economic policy? Um, How loudly is the Elizabeth Warren wing of the Democratic Party going to be represented versus the more pro-corporate or pro-tech sector wing? Uh, These are the things that I'm going to be watching out for.
0: Emma, Lily, what are you two planning on following over the next few weeks or months? Well, I'll be watching,
1: um, I guess, what all of these groups that have been emboldened under President Trump continue to do as our political situation changes, because they're not going to disappear. And I think it'll be important to see how they kind of interact with the mainstream political sphere now that they've potentially lost this huge figurehead that they've had for four years. Um, And so I'll be watching that and seeing um, what efforts can be made to help people come around to... um, more reality-based ways of thinking.
0: Lily, what are you going to be keeping an eye on in the coming months?
3: Well, in the immediate coming months, I'm going to be keeping an eye on the transfer of power. Very curious to see how this is actually all going to go down. That could be rocky. And so that, you know, that's not speculation. That's based on Trump's statements. The legal avenues don't seem to be generating a lot of results for the re-election campaign right now. Uh, But there's a little bit more to watch on that in the coming days. Uh, And yeah, I'm just curious about what else uh, Trump might be able to dream up to make these next weeks and months very rocky. Uh, In terms of election security and uh, election infrastructure, like we were talking about before, it's going to be really fascinating to see how the lessons learned from this experience impact, you know, the direction that local election officials, state and federal, uh, from all parties, you know, in a nonpartisan way, how they want to uh, adapt or, you know, change or go back to what they were doing before uh, for hopefully uh, future elections that are not run in pandemic conditions. Uh, But I think there have been some interesting uh, things that have come out of this For example, one reason I think Election Day ran so smoothly is that because of so much early voting, whatever the format, whether it was mail voting or in-person early voting, there's just a lot of pressure taken off Election Day itself.
0: All right, that's it for this episode of Get Wired. Get Wired is hosted by me, Lauren Good. You can follow me on Twitter at Lauren Good. This episode was reported by Galad Edelman, Lily Hay Newman, and Emma Gray Ellis. And you can follow them on Twitter, at Galad Edelman, at Lily H. Newman, and at Emma Gray Ellis. That's Gray with an E. This episode was produced by Mickey Capper, with additional production help from Anna Stitt, Ben Montoya, and Asia Simpson. Mixing and scoring was done by Hannes Brown. Our theme music is by Allison Layton Brown. Nina Gensler-Debs, and Sarah Fallon edited this episode. Scott Rosenfield is Wired site director, and our editor-in-chief is Nick Thompson. You can subscribe to Wired at wired.com forward slash subscribe forward slash getwired.